Thank you for joining. Thank you, everyone. Um, welcome to Upfront Summit 2020. Woo. Um, I wanted to introduce my incredible panelists before we begin. We have James Rogers, CEO and founder of Appeal Sciences. He's raised over $100 million and is currently building an incredible company to increase the lifetime of produce on shelves. Walter Robb, uh, the former co-CEO of Whole Foods, having worked his way up the ranks in the food industry, and he's now an investor, mentor, and advisor to the next generation of food companies and the incredible Eve Cicerone, the founder of Upfront Ventures. Um, so just wanna thank all my panelists for being here. So I wanted to start off this conversation with some data for people to have some idea of what we're talking about here. Humans have lived in a state of mental, in a mental state of abundance for quite a while, and we're starting to see the shortages. Just some data points. The cost of food waste globally is currently $2.6 trillion annually. Roughly one-third of food produced in the world for human consumption every year, approximately 1.3 billion tons gets wasted or lost, and at a retail level, large quantities of food are wasted due to quality standards that overemphasize appearance. At least 1.8 billion people globally use fecally contaminated drinking water, and water scarcity affects more than 40% of the world's population. So with that, I'd like to start with James. I know, James, that you've been on a mission to change some parts of this conversation. And I'd love to start off with understanding what was the impetus behind starting Appeal? You had just come out of your PhD program. Let's start off there. Yeah, uh, uh, first of all, I'll tell you uh, what, what Appeal does. Um, and the tagline that we use is that Appeal uses food to preserve food, um, which sounds kind of opaque or marketing-y. So what I mean by that is Appeal uses materials that are found in every bite of fruit and vegetable that you eat every day in order to create a water-based formula that we apply to the surface of fresh produce. It adds a little extra peel. You can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't feel it, but it's there and it's controlling the factors um, which cause produce to age, which are basically water going out and oxygen going in. Um, and that last bit, um, why fruit ages, uh, water going out and oxygen going in, um, ended up being one of the, the impetuses for, for starting the company. Um, I, was, I, had no, I, had, uh, I knew nothing about uh, the, the food industry. In fact, when I called my mom to tell her uh, about the idea for the company, she said, sweetie, that sounds really nice, but you don't know anything about fruits and vegetables. Uh, very true, I grew up in Michigan, not, not uh, super high on fruits and veg. Um, and, uh, I, but I had gone to, to UC Santa Barbara to do my PhD in materials engineering. And I was studying these solar paints, and the idea was that you could uh, mix up a bucket of paint and you could paint the surface and let it dry, and it would dry into a solar cell that you could use to charge your phone or to power a light or something. I thought, that's a really cool technology to work on. I'm going to spend my uh, years in Santa Barbara studying that. Um, but uh, watching uh, paint dry is not very interesting unless you have very, <laughs> very fancy equipment to look at it. And so I would make these trips between Santa Barbara and Lawrence Berkeley National Lab where they had the equipment to make these experiments interesting. And on one of these trips, I was listening to a uh, podcast about how, how we were going to feed 10 billion people on this planet in 30 years. Uh, meanwhile, we only had 7 billion and 1 in 9 people were going hungry already. And I, I'd never really thought about the issue of, of people going hungry. Um, it was just kind of one of those things, you know, the world has hunger, the world has cancer, um, the world has, you know, war. Um, but I'd never really asked the next question why that is. Um, 
And uh, it struck me because I was driving through Salinas, which is uh, considered the salad bowl of the US. Um, and as far as I could see in every direction were these lush green fields. And all I could think to myself was, we've been provided basically these magical seeds that we put in the ground, they absorb water, they absorb sunlight, they produce food, and they self-propagate. How is it possible that one in nine people are going hungry when we've been afforded this magic? And so um, I looked into it, and uh, I'll spare you all the details, um, but uh, learned that the reason that, that people are going hungry um, is not because of their inability to produce food, but rather their inability to um, take that valuable produce and uh, trade it for money so that they can do the back conversion from money to food when they don't have production. And uh, that inability to trade is a result of the fact that food goes bad. Um, and so I quickly looked up that food goes bad because water goes out and oxygen goes in. And that reminded me exactly of my days at Carnegie Mellon as an undergraduate where we studied steel. Um, you know, might, might not think about steel as perishable, um, but it reacts with oxygen in the atmosphere, and it forms iron oxide, which eats into the steel and, and limits its utility, uh, which was until metallurgists figured out this clever trick that you could incorporate um, certain elements like molybdenum, like chromium, like nickel, um, into that chunk of uh, iron, and when you did that, those elements would preferentially react with oxygen and form this little barrier around the outside which would physically block further oxygen from reaching the surface, and, and that was the invention of stainless steel. And so the, the, the math uh, for appeal was, well, if steel was going bad and we put a little barrier around it, and that created stainless steel, um, and people are going hungry because food's going bad, and food's going bad because uh, water's going out and oxygen's going in, maybe we put a little barrier around the food, um, that would slow down the water going out, oxygen going in, um, that would allow people to trade, um, and that may eventually uh, have an impact on the hunger problem. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Eve, you were the first investor in Appeal and spent a lot of time with James very early on. Uh, would love to hear the story of how you met James, what got you excited about this, and then also you know, a little bit about Upfront's thesis in sustainability and how we're thinking about it. Well, I met James about six years ago, I think October 13, if I remember correctly. Yeah, sounds right. Uh, referred to by one of our CEOs in uh, Santa Barbara, Jason Spivak, who was, yeah. CEO of, was at the time CEO of Invoca. And, uh, you know, just drove down to Santa Barbara and uh, sat down with James, and he gave me exactly that speech. Uh, I mean, especially on the material science side, I, you lost me a little bit, <laughs> you know, uh, not having a material science background, but um, certainly going after a big problem and a problem that wasn't really addressed then, uh, which was that you can, you know, and we all know we have a big issue with food supply and increasing that food supplies you know, with population in the next decades, and, and that's probably one of the greatest challenges of our times, really. And, uh, and James was approaching it from an angle that no one really had approached, which is to reduce waste as opposed to increasing the, the supply or the production or the efficiency, the productivity. Uh, so big idea. I mean, the other thing that's in that first meeting is that he had these little cameras uh, that you had 3D printed, I think, uh, uh, at the time. And there were time-lapse sort of videos where you could look at strawberries, uh, you know, treated and untreated strawberries and see the, the result. And, and it was 
pretty clear that after whatever it was, two or three weeks' time, uh, the treated strawberries were looking brand new and, and the, the others were shriveling and, mm -hmm. and all this. So that, that was pretty impressive. Uh, at the time, we essentially participated in the seed, uh, small check. Uh, and, uh, and really, I spent time with James after that. I think I came once a month or so to meet with you and spend the afternoon in that small office uh, <laughs> that you had uh, with uh, three people. And, and it was really during that time about productizing uh, um, you know, what you were doing uh, so that we could get ready to, to commercialize it. But more importantly for me, it was spending time with James. And, and frankly, I mean, lots of VCs in the audience, you know, we all know that, okay, you can want to change the world, have a great solution to an enormous problem. Uh, have the science, which is a key, because I don't think you can really, at least in that space, make a difference without a solid science behind it and engineering. And you want the founder, and a founder that can pull it off. And, uh, and uh, so I had this opportunity to spend maybe a year with you, James, uh, at the time, and, and get to know him. And, and you know, I think, I, I don't want to embarrass you, but having sort of the combination of, uh, of a scientist, a PhD material science from UCSB, which is probably the best program in the world for material science, one of the three best, I think, uh, and, uh, and being able to you know, grow a company, hire people, uh, great people, uh, be a leader, uh, be a charismatic leader, and, and I think you have all of that, and I think it's, it, part of it is probably that you have this uh, sports background as well as the science one. I mean, you were captain of a football team in, <laughs> in, in high school, in college, so that's competitive spirit and, and nature, and uh, frankly, uh, that's what convinced us um, to then lead the Series A uh, a year later, and, and we've been uh, doing that ever since, and uh, certainly not disappointed with uh, our choice. <laughs> Great. Um, and obviously, Walter, you're actually a board member at Appeal as well and have been involved with the company for a while now. And you obviously have the perspective both from the retailer side of thing and then also as a consumer. Would love to get your perspective on sort of what you're seeing in the market and what your understanding from the retailer side is of what, how they would react to Appeal and how would consumers view this as well? Yeah. Well, morning, everybody. Um, I think the really amazing thing about what James has done here, and, and kudos to you for supporting him five years ago, is that for the last 70 years in America, in the world, really, we've, we've really been following the industrialized agriculture, the modernization of agriculture, the major production protocols that have kind of built our food system. And what's happening here now is a pivot where we're seeing the, the real insight of appeal is to say, we, we're, we're going to work with nature. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of wisdom and knowledge in nature that we can now tap to build the next generation of food and food systems. Uh, whether well, you come out of front, and, and food systems touch every major uh, problem on the planet, whether it's climate, whether it's health, whether it's in any area you go, food, the food system, which represents about 18% of the GDP, is touching it in some very real way. So the beauty of, for me, when I found James and met James and we talked, is the philosophical alignment, the philosophical thought that we can think about solving a very big problem, which food waste is. And it's not food waste like on the whole food salad bars. We're not talking about that. Where most of the lost food is in the production system, the mismatch between supply and demand, where, you know, literally, you know, there'll be 200 million pounds of chicken breasts that have no place to go. And so they don't want to take the brand down. So we're talking about massive amounts of food. And I would say the number in the U.S. is probably north of 40 percent versus the 30 percent. So here you come, James, taking on a very big problem, but with a philosophical 
uh, orientation that I think is right for the times in terms of being responsible. So obviously the benefits are pretty clear. Uh, as a grocer, one of the things that you worry about is shrink, the term of art for the food that goes bad. We've all had that experience where we go to the produce stand, stick our finger through the avocado. Ah, that's not the one for us, yeah. but what does the grocer do? The grocer has to do something with it. So it helps us on the supply side to manage our inventory, uh, to, manage, to make it more manageable in terms of sequencing it. Uh, for the customer, it gives them two things. One, I think the, the sense that they're buying a product that's gonna last a little longer. They go away for the weekend, they come back, it's still gonna be there. But increasingly, I think as the Appeal brand gets some consumer recognition for what it stands for, it is organic, uh, it is safe. It's essentially, he essentially takes the lipids out of a peel of, and then puts it back on top of the food. It's, it's as simple as that and not as simple as that. But for the customer, a brand that says you can, you can, pick a, you can make a choice of a citrus or an asparagus or an avocado, it's going to have these benefits when you take it home and it's going to last. So, you know, I see benefits of overall food system, uh, the potential just really starting to be realized, benefits to the grocer. Uh, all the way through the supply chain and then also to the customer as well. Yeah. And obviously, James, you're working with retailers, so, and you're working with grocers. Like, could you share some sort of anecdotes or any, anything that you are comfortable sharing in terms of their reactions and sort of to, what were their reactions when you first talked to them and what have been reactions today and sort of seeing the development of the product? Uh, the, the first reactions were, were kind of funny. It was, why are you here? Um, you know, why is, a, why is a technology provider for our suppliers um, sitting down in our offices and telling us about a technology that our suppliers are going to be using? And uh, that, that kind of uh, took me by surprise that, that no one had, had sat down and, and discussed this with the retailers before um, until kind of had the recognition that, you know, most of the tricks that we had been using in the food system were things people did not want to talk about. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, things like plastic packaging. There were things like, you know, pesticides um, that uh, actually were uh, the, the grocers preferred that those things were maybe invisible to them. And so when we sat down um, and explained that we had, uh, you know, started this company on the foundation that, you know, if you put a strawberry on the table and you wait for three days, and you put a lemon on the table, and you wait for three days, the strawberry melts into a puddle in three days, but the lemon still going for a mm -hmm. month, and that we had you know, gotten together and thought, well, they're both food. Why is it that the, lem that the lemon lasts for a month and the strawberry melts into a puddle? And um, you know, it, didn't take a, it didn't take a genius to say, well, maybe there's something about the peel of the lemon that's uh, unique or special relative to the peel of the strawberry. And so uh, that we had gotten a company together and we began looking at this and saying, well, maybe the molecules that compose uh, the, the peel of the lemon are different than the molecules that compose the peel of the strawberry. Mm -hmm. And uh, we zoomed in and we were shocked to find out that uh, the molecules are identical. Um, they're, in retrospect, maybe shouldn't have been surprised because nature's clever at reusing materials. Um, so we scratched our heads and, and thought, well, okay, let's ask the question a material scientist might, might ask, which is maybe the molecules are arranged differently on the surface of the lemon relative to the surface of the strawberry. And if that's the case, then we can learn from the lemon and we can teach that to the strawberry using exactly the same materials. And if we do that, we're using food to preserve food, which is something philosophically that we think is worth building and something that we should be communicating to your shoppers because 
it's an it's an opportunity for them to uh, purchase something with which is better tasting, longer lasting, more nutritious, lower cost, and available without without chem. And that um, idea that that actually uh, the the, the post harvest elements of production had a huge impact on the overall marketable quality of what they were able to carry in their stores and what, what it would mean for reduced waste and inventory management, um, had never, they'd never been approached um, with something like that before mm -hmm. because it wasn't something that really wanted uh, to, to be talked about. And so um, uh, we, we, had, we found ourselves um, you know, kind of a blazing new territory. Yeah. Kind of zooming out a little bit, and Walter, actually, you and I talked a little bit about this earlier, which was, you know, it'd be great to hear what are other choices out there for customers to make around food? Like, what are some of the options people can be, what are better options people can be making? What are more sustainable options people can be making? And especially for our audience today to hear your perspective around that. Yeah, I just want to add one more thing on the, on the, on the, on the import of, or potential part of James's work, which is think about all those places in the world where fresh food is not distributed. Either the distribution network is not yet built out inner cities of America that are underserved on fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, even social crisis situations or humanitarian crisis situations where this could be a help to something like that. All that to be realized in the future. But look, we're, we're, on, we're on nothing short of a, a new food revolution that's beginning now. Uh, I've sort of given you some of the thoughts, my thoughts on the philosophical underpinning for that. But realizing the limits of, of large-scale production and, and uh, single-use chemicals, there are some there's, a, there's an alternative production system that's evolving side by side. Uh, no disrespect there, because the, we have the most productive agriculture in the world, but we have also a very vibrant uh, uh, alternative agriculture structure that's involved. So the big thing is the plant-based, right? Plant-based, whole foods plant-based is uh, growth as far as the eye can see, and the capital markets seem to have woken up to all these various things. Examples, uh, indoor agriculture, which will, which is a fairly small part of the total food supply right now, is growing rapidly, whether it's uh, soil-based, water-based, or air-based. All sorts of technologies and companies out there bringing those alternatives to market, primarily in greens, but going to be spreading into other varieties. You have, uh, of course, the plant-based meats. You've all seen the phenom of Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. That's only the tip of the iceberg. And by the way, the demand for those products is globally, and it's led by flexitarians, not by vegans and vegetarians. It's by those who just want to eat a little less meat are concerned about their impact on climate. There's cellular-based meat, which will be coming to market in less than two years, where the, uh, the scientist has bypassed the animal, essentially taking the protein from the animal and reproducing it. Mm -hmm. um, you have, on the organic side, you got regenerative organic. You have so much science happening on soil Soil biomes, you know, the, the uh, Google, Google, for example, is deeply involved in, in the analytics around soil and agriculture. And uh, I'm going to tell you later about some of the companies I think are really cool. But the fact is, um, you've got this whole new opening up of a variety of foods that just, uh, we get about 80% or 85% of our calories from uh, five animals and 12, 12, uh, 12 plants. And we have tapped less than 0.1% of the plant universe that's out there right now. Yeah. So the next 50 years looks like an exploding variety, and a lot of the momentum in the food marketplace has shifted to the small and medium-sized companies who are able to innovate and bring some of these new products to market. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Eve, I know that obviously you've been thinking about this for a long time. Um, 
are there other investments that you're making in the food space or in, around sustainability, whether it be food, whether it be water, whether it be bugs? Yeah, I it mean, so happens. <laughs> so happens. But but you asked me before about our thesis. I mean, I mean, it's pretty simply just trying to find solution to these big challenges uh, yeah. around food supply, um, water, maybe to a certain extent. But I think water is taken care of in a sense by companies like Appeal in a, in a sense that you re by reducing waste, you're reducing water consumption at the same time. So every, everything is linked and you know, every company you know, affects that, that ecosystem. But um, yeah, so with fruits and vegetables, two and a half trillion dollars a year and, 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 and with, with Appeal, I think we're addressing a big issue uh, in reducing waste. Uh, proteins, other than what Walter just uh, mentioned about new so cell-based proteins or things of that nature. Uh, there's also uh, big issues around uh, the oceans um, and about uh, the sustainability, what we do in terms of fish. Uh, uh, we're close to 50% uh, uh, of uh, fish farms in terms of uh, uh, you know, consumer um, spending. Um, those fish farms generally uh, do something that's very unsustainable. Essentially, they feed fish with fish uh, and empty the oceans to do it. Uh, so we just, and some of you yesterday may have seen uh, the presentation, but uh, we invested in a company that uh, breeds uh, insects, um, mealworms, uh, as a source of protein uh, for uh, farm fish. I, I mean, carnivorous fat, farm fish, like salmon and things like this. And the market is enormous. I mean, the fish feed in the world is 44 million tons, uh, tons a year. Um, and... Um, you know, uh, in the end, for us, it's, uh, it's true for anyone in the audience, is you, you want to find things that can really tip the scale mm -hmm. uh, and solve a global issue and tip the scale. And that's what Appeal does and will do in spades in the future. And, and it's hard to find companies that really have, can offer something systematic that's yeah. kind of going to uh, offer. And, and uh, Insect is, is, is one of those. Yeah. Awesome. And I think that. You know, we've all, we obviously, have, everyone has a point of view on the food system. Everyone is talking about this. But um, Walter briefly alluded to this, which is how do you increase accessibility? And there is, aside from the fact that today there's obviously foods on shelves, um, but price comes into play here, right? How do we think about the fact that there is food on shelf and some of, this, some of these uh, methodologies do require to pack in that price, pack in, pack that into the price. Well, James, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I know you've talked about this, and um, I'm sure that would be great to hear more. Yeah, this, this is one of those areas where waste impacts every single person um, in the in the supply chain, and very significantly the the, the end consumer. Um, today, we we have a, a very non-participatory food system. Um, in the sense that uh, you are either a major producer that has a uh, refrigerated supply chain to a major consumption region, um, and you've got ref and then you've got refrigerated distribution, mm -hmm. or you don't have access um, to that. Um, because the only tool that we've had available to us um, in terms of, of fresh produce has been uh, cold storage. Um, it's required very significant investment um, in uh, establishing this, this cold chain infrastructure, which 
does allow us to reduce waste in those supply chains. But because it requires such a significant investment, there are people on the planet that don't have access to the refrigerated supply chain either on the input side, meaning the production, they can't get it to where it needs to get to to be exported, or on the consumption side, um, they, there's not a refrigerated supply chain to the stores um, uh, where, where they live. And so uh, you know, we, we see a future where um, by reducing perishability, um, you actually are creating a more participatory food system where small growers, um, because of this reduced perishability, have the ability to connect that uh, intrinsically valuable natural resource that they have access to into a market um, that is willing to pay for that intrinsically valuable um, piece of food, um, which you know, by, by no fault of, of their own today, uh, not able to establish um, that connection. Um, and so that, when you don't have that connection, that results in, in A, people going hungry on the production side. Um, but at the same time, um, the food that does make it through the supply chain, um, there's so much waste in that distribution because of, again, the, the lack of refrigerant infrastructure that uh, it, it contributes to a large amount of waste. And, um, you know, people aren't, you know, saying, oh, well, we only, you know, we only, we bought 100 avocados, we only sold 80, but we're only going to charge for the price of the 80 avocados. Mm -hmm. You have to recoup that, that full cost. And so that additional cost of waste is baked into the price that consumers pay. And so uh, I'm really proud of the fact that uh, our partners are able to, to pay appeal uh, to, to install our, our product. Um, and then it, the consumer ends up paying less because we're able to take so much waste out of the supply chain. And I think as we continue um, to, to remove waste from the supply chain, it's going to continue to pull cost down, down, down um, until we not only have food that can get everywhere because it, it's able to make it there, um, but also is so low waste that the, the cost is as low as it could conceivably be. Yeah, that's, that's incredibly interesting. Um, we do, obviously, everyone, has, we have a perspective on what the food, uh, Walter, you sort of referred to what the food system looks like and today and sort of what are some of the things that we should be spending time in or sort of actions we should be taking. What does our food system look like in 50 years from now? You've yeah. briefly touched it upon it and I would love to hear that and some of the features, some of the key features of that food system. Yeah, well, I mentioned earlier, you've got, you've got kind of two parallel food systems and Beth will be out in a little bit and she's a, a tremendous leader and innovator in the larger scale agriculture that she company that she leads, but for one, it'll be a far more diverse. The foods that we eat will be far more diverse. There's there's uh, there's there's clearly a whole new uh, uh, range of foods that are going to be introduced to the world from different sources. If you want to go, uh, Noor Swiss Noor uh, sponsors a report called the Top New 50 Foods every year. It's a great read in terms of where some of these products may be coming from. One example is Lemna L E M N A. It's an aquatic green. It's got superior protein, so there's company developing that now. So it's going to be far more diverse. I think, I think second of all, it's going to be far more flavorful. Mm. So we have primarily been, the seed industry has primarily bred for productivity or for packaging, but the customer is saying now, I'm really interested in how it tastes and the flavor. And food is a wonderful, pleasurable experience, right? And so you have some seed companies starting up. You have some companies that are hiring flavor people. Uh, drafting them from the ingredient industry and putting together uh, an attempt to bring products on and, and on flavor. So I think it's more flavorful. I think it's connected with um, with our health. In other words, we're going to have you know what's happening is food will become medicine. They'll be uh, not disrupt not only the healthcare model but also will have disrupted um, kind of the um, 
your personalized path to health. You want to optimize your health. You use food that's been augmented by some of these things that are being discovered. A company I would call out to you that I think is fantastic is Brightseed out of San Francisco. These scientists uh, are basically created a computer AI tool to uncover and connect mo you know, molecules in the plant world with, with uh, chronic disease. And so, but without modification of any sort, but just through amplification, they're going to be able to bring these phytonutrients, let's say, 3x phytonutrient broccoli uh, to you, and you'll be able to make that choice. So these, these worlds will be brought together. The full potential of food will be realized. Healthcare will be turned on its head. Um, every individual will have tools and, and, and platforms to be able to access that. Whether they do or not, that's, that's the choice they'll have to make. But the world will be also far more transparent. So you'll be able to go to the store and, you know, uh, and the stores will still be in the future, by the way, um, despite all the digital growth. Um, people still are human beings and they like the connection. But the tools to be able to, be in, to inform yourself as to where something's grown, how it's grown, all those sorts of qualities, uh, that will be all readily available. So, and it'll be fast, right? Yeah. It'll be fast. The digital thing will be fully realized and integrated uh, with the physical. Thank you. Uh, appreciate that. And so I think I, I have time for one more question. And Eve, I'm going to ask you this. We talked a lot about sort of the biggest challenges facing water protection today. And I think that you've sort of alluded to it at some point. And I'd love to get just a couple of thoughts. Yeah, there. I mean, as can't James really says, talk about investment in water, but, but probably more about the problem with water, essentially. I mean, for agriculture, water is needed. For our, our protein supply, water is needed. Uh, on one side, you get the ocean that, where the water quality is certainly diminishing, and probably the, we see a future of land-based, um, uh, you know, uh, farm, farm fish uh, operations, and probably less and less ocean-based because of the water quality there. Uh, water also is, as uh, Jared Diamond said yesterday, is very geographic. I mean, there are some places like China that has. 20% of the world population and 5% of the water. Some other places have a lot of water, like Canada and others. So you have all these uneven supplies. Also, climate change was going to impact that and shift, you know, regions. And and so it's challenging. If you look at California or Spain, there are two sort of the gardens of uh, Europe and United States. And uh, I mean, James, you know that well. You look at south of Spain, they. It seems like only greenhouses from the sky, you see all of that. And why is that? It's because it's drying out and they don't have water. And in California, we know what our water issues. So adjusting to that, uh, you know, maybe, you know, almonds are great, but uh, at the same time, they're super water dependent. So we're going to have to adjust our productions and, and, and geographies to actually adapt to the water issues yep. more necessarily than changing the water yeah. because that's, that's a hard thing to do. But. Absolutely. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. And big round of applause for our panelists.